Hey guys, Matt Gurney here for Jen Gerson. This is the latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. A couple of media notes for you today, including, unfortunately, some bad news for our friends, of which we have many, at Post Media, but also what appears to be an emerging conservative media strategy. We'll tell you a little bit about that. We're also going to tell you what Jen's been working on on the Alberta front. Uh, very interesting developments there. The CBC made a pretty explosive claim and the premier's office is pushing back and maybe with some reason and toronto apparently needs batman and not adam west style quirky friendly batman but like full-on christian bale hardcore batman all that and more on the latest episode of the lines experimental podcast well jen gerson's here uh matt gurney here as well jen you and i were speaking earlier uh we had a chat earlier in the day uh before we did the dispatch just had some business to cover we both got big meaty things to talk about in our own respective jurisdictions i want to throw one thing at you though before we get into it not really uh something on either of our radars in terms of writing about the dispatch but something to pay attention to pierre polyev is back he, after he won the leadership, a lot of people were commenting, where'd he go? Where is he? He was still doing his, he was in the house and he was doing his videos on social, but he was not in the mainstream media. Now that I've mentioned it, you'll realize I'm right, but I don't know if it would have occurred to you before. He was nowhere to be seen for months. The last two weeks he's back. So I don't know what to make of this, but there is obviously either something has been sorted internally with the conservatives maybe he just needed a break like it could honestly just be he was tired and they needed a break to uh, to rest and retool but after a long absence from the media the conservatives are obviously now beginning a media push i don't have anything to say about it i just note it and um you should note it and the listeners should note it i i know this because earlier this week i was doing local radio i was filling in for a colleague uh in uh, local toronto am radio and he was doing the media market and hmm. he hasn't been for months. So interesting. Well, I mean, this also might rend- lend some credence to the idea that there is a bit of an election push a brewing. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think the, if you're the conservatives, you have to be battle ready for an election. The The people who decide whether or not there's going to be an election are going to be Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Singh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for the conservatives, you just got to kind of be on election con two all the time. I just thought it was intriguing because I actually think Mr. Polio is pretty effective in the media. Like a um, bit of a one trick pony, I find, um, but good at, at it. Like it's a good mm-hmm. trick. So it was strange to me to see him go off for a while. One of my little meta theories is that everybody's tired, like on a civilization level. So maybe he yeah. just swear to God needed a break. You know, I feel like I need a break and I've only really been back at work for two weeks. I'm yeah, tired. You, but you look radiant. You look great. Uh, so, New face oil. Oh. Yeah, maybe I should try that. <laughs> should, uh, do you want to go first? Like, basically, yeah, so basically, yeah, so I'm going to spend most of my uh, time in the dispatch writing about this one thing because I've already kind of half written it and it's a thousand words long. So last week in the dispatch, we talked about a latest, the latest scandal to come out of crazy Alberta, or Alberta, as we like to call it. Um, And this was a story from the CBC alleging that um, someone from within Daniel Smith's premier's office had been contacting Crown prosecutors by email, trying to dispute their version of events on some of the Coots charges and and just kind of meddling where they shouldn't be meddling, particularly on COVID-related charges. And this was reinforced by the fact that uh, Daniel Smith... Um, had said publicly on two occasions that she had sort of spoken with the Crown prosecutors in order to try and see if some of these measures could be rolled back now that, or some of these charges could be rolled back now that um, uh, COVID was over. And of course, people pointed out that you know, our premier can't do that. You know, this isn't this is this isn't America. You know, you don't have pardon powers. And bluntly, we should have an independent judiciary. So you shouldn't be meddling in any part of this at all. Um, she then recanted that and said. No, no, no. I, I was just being imprecise. What I meant was I was talking with my attorney general, who, of course, is Tyler Shandro and a member of Smith's camp cabinet, you know, asking him for legal advice on some of this stuff and, you know, whether or not it was in the public interests. Oops. So when Daniel, so when the CBC publishes the story initially, it's, it's, it's a highly credible story because it aligns with what Smith had said previously. One slight caveat in all of this is that the the CBC story relied on unnamed sources talking about an email being sent to the Crown Prosecutor 
And it was an email that by their own admission, they had not seen or read. So, okay. But, you know, see how the story played out. And it certainly did not seem beyond the realm of probability that certain uh, individuals from Daniel Smith's office, especially one whom I will not name, um, would be guilty of doing something this stupid. All right. And also, I say that we get into some gray versus some black, the gray zone versus black and white here, because there really isn't a reason for someone from the premier's office to be contacting a crown prosecutor. Like there just really wouldn't be very much of a reason for that to happen. No, and there'd be uh, reasons not for that to happen. There would be lots of reasons for that not to have to, ha- to, ha- to be happening. But when it talk, when you're talking about um, a premier or even a prime minister talking to his own attorney general, you're in a much grayer territory. It's wrong, for example, for a premier to pressure an attorney general to drop charges when the charges are warranted. But it certainly is within the realm of validity for, for example, a leader to go to an attorney general and be like, look, I want your legal opinion on this particular case. Like, they can kind of discuss this stuff. It's not like there's a a firewall here. But, you know, the discussion can't range into pressuring a person into dropping it. So those are two different stories. So then after we published, very interesting things happened. Because initially, the first report that came out, everybody kind of assumed CBC was just spot on, and everybody assumed that this was happening. And so Smith was like, okay, we're going to look into this, and you know, if, if this has happened, we'll deal with them appropriately. Over last weekend, they apparently had their IT department search something like a million emails between all of the members of all the official government emails of between some everybody between Smith's office and a tr- Crown prosecutors. And at the end of the end of the weekend, they came back and said, we found nothing. Like, we found nothing. But here's the caveat to them saying they found nothing. They can only search deleted emails back until 30 days. So their deleted email search only went back to December 22nd. So of all of the emails in the inbox, plus the deleted emails going back to December 22nd, they're claiming they found nothing. So now everybody's going like, hey, this fuck's going on now. Um, Because if there was an email to a Crown prosecutor, it should have turned up on that search with some insinuation that clearly this had happened back in February. So obviously the, the emails were just deleted and, you know, obviously this is, sorry, this happened back in fall, not February fall. Um, and clearly it just was missed in the deleted email search. So there was some, there's still some outstanding question about whether or not there is a deleted email that has not been found because it wasn't included as part of the search. But then the gaze starts to shift over to CBC because now the question starts to be, Okay, so what exactly are you alleging and what are your sources and all this? And then, of course, a kind of a second story comes out. So first, there's the story about the Crown Prosecutor, sorry, the email from the Premier Staff to the Crown Prosecutor's Office. And then a second story comes out that essentially alleges that there was um, uh, pressure put on the Attorney General's Office from the Premier Staff. And this seems to be bolstered by some kind of uh, letter that was sent from Ezra Levant to Daniel Smith or someone from within her office that was then forwarded on to um, someone within uh, the, the Ministry of Justice. Now, here's where we're in this gray area, because that in and of itself wouldn't necessarily be inappropriate. The only t- way that that would be inappropriate would be if the staff member were to treat that like a direction to the Attorney General. But for their sake, Smith's team has said, no, that we didn't pressure them. We didn't, none of the communications we had with the Attorney General were, general were, were at all inappropriate. The Attorney General, Chandra's and his office has said, no, that we weren't pressured. And to be fair to them, if they were, they weren't pressured very well because there were no charges dropped. Um, and and they're just basically Smith has ba- basically dropped that particular campaign promise, which is why a lot of the cranks now are very angry at her. Um, and there just doesn't seem to be any evidence as of today that would suggest that someone from the premier's office unsuccessfully pressured the attorney general. So then we got to go back to the original story that was that that was something to the effect of. Okay, but someone from the premier's office um, sent an email to the crown prosecutor, to a crown prosecutor. There's a couple of reasons why we don't have evidence to support that just yet, which doesn't mean that it's not true. But CBC's story there appears to be pretty thinly sourced. It's sourced on an anonymous allegation from someone who says this email exists but can't produce it because email, because, you know, CBC ha- hasn't, by their own admission, hasn't seen the email. And so at 
the best case scenario, CDC has introduced the possibility of an interpretation error. Like what if the source in this question either ha- doesn't have firsthand knowledge of this email or may have misinterpreted what was actually in it? Like unless CBC has seen the email themselves, they don't know. And that's where this whole thing starts to get really, really messy because now Danielle Smith is like doubling down saying, no, I demand an apology and a retraction. This is defamatory. And it probably is, but I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, and so, and at the same time, we've got CBC Calgary doubling down on their stuff saying, nope, we trust a reporter. We stand by our reporting. Screw you. And this whole thing seems absolutely poised to go batshit because one of two things is now going to happen. No, one of three things is now going to happen. One, Duze Mashina, an email is going to appear that's going to prove the CBC story. Two, which could happen, could not, or one of the sources comes out, goes on the record, possible, but I don't know. Two, you have the CBC back down and retract. Three, you have the um, Danielle Smith and her team blink and not move forward with a, a lawsuit because they just want to move on and they don't want to get bogged down in something that, like a court case. Or four, they're going to be like, screw it, we're going to sue the CBC. In which case, this thing becomes like a years-long drama in which there will be disclosure on both sides and every single discovery that is made from the CBC is going to get turned into a CPC fundraising letter. And ultimately, if they wind up losing this particular libel case, as they might, that's going to be used as a cudgel to, to, to cudgel against the CBC when there's when Prime Minister Polyev is 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 at the helm of of deciding what goes on in the Heritage Committee. So this is like one of those local process stories that was initially only interesting to nerds, and now has a potential to just blow up in everybody's face. So a couple of quick points, but I'm going to start with one question first. Is okay. it possible that the communications that the CBC described as an email were sent from personal emails to personal emails or were absolutely not an email, but maybe it was a, a long text message, things like that? Well, like, has they, that been accounted they, for? They initially said and have stuck by the claim that it's an email. Now, two, yes, of course it's possible. Maybe this was sent Gmail to Gmail. In which case, why would somebody from the premier's office be emailing a, the personal email of a, of, a G, of a crown prosecutor? That doesn't make much sense. But yes, of, co- of course, that could happen. Yeah. It and that could and if that's the case, then that could magically appear and you know you know story's over. But here's where the, the thing gets really complicated because a lot of the people who have been um, trying to attacking this, the 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 credibility of the government on this one. Of course, the government doesn't have a lot of credibility to begin with, but that's fine. Have pointed out that okay, well, for all we know, somebody from your staff just deleted the email back in in fall, and in which case your search wouldn't have brought it up. And that's true. Except here's the problem: their email search also included emails to the crown prosecutors themselves. So yeah, the premier staffer could have hypothetically deleted this email and it wouldn't have shown up. But it would have but caught up the, on the incoming. But it would have been caught by the caught on yeah. the prosecutor side. And also let me let me know that deleting potentially foibable emails is illegal. Is illegal. So why would the crown prosecutor be yeah, deleting yeah. a potentially foibable email? That's okay. that that's and maybe they did. I don't know. I'm but always uh no, yeah, that makes sense. Messy. And it makes sense, but I'm always suspicious of narrow denials. So when the premier's office says we've checked our emails, we didn't find anything, I'm like, Yeah, okay, I believe that. Mm-hmm. But like what haven't oh. what hasn't been checked. So that was why what hasn't I asked been checked. That. And 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 there's also what's unknown unknowns, right? Like, oh, yeah. yeah, totally possible that that that's a, a private email was sent from a Gmail account to a Gmail account. And that would not be covered under any kind of um government search. But unless the crown prosecutor in this case is willing to come forward with that Gmail. How does the CBC defend its story? Like the problem here is that if you're the government or if you're anybody, you can't disprove a negative. Like you can't prove that an email never existed. So the onus is going to be on the CBC to prove that this thing does exist. And if nobody comes forward with it to even show them that it exists, how do they do that if they're sued for libel? So, well, Yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't matter if the CBC's right. Uh, CBC's yeah. right if it can't prove it's right. That's right. Um. Okay. So sorry, I'm just firing off a text message because my kids are pl- trying to plan a play date on me, and I'm telling them Daddy is talking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure they've heard that before. Your life will change when your kids start sending messages. Like okay. it, this is a whole different layer of communication. But okay. 
Um, a couple of things. One, this didn't get a lot of attention outside of Alberta, I think. I, I read the Alberta papers every day, so I was generally familiar with it. But what really started to get attention abroad, so to speak, in the ROC, was when it got into the escalating denials and double downs. Yeah. So that's kind of like, because every time you go up a level, that's more of your credibility. So yeah. that's interesting. The other thing is that this had automatic resonance and everyone's hypocrisy radar went up because of SNC-Lavalin. 100%. And people are going, oh yeah, conservatives, well... You know, so you thought it was bad when Trudeau does this, but you don't think it's bad if Smith does it. If Smith or anyone in her office did that, it's bad. Yes, hundred percent. Just yes. as bad as what Trudeau is trying to do. Absolutely. With the now, possible exception that apparently this was being done directly at Trudeau's behalf. Has anyone suggested that this was going no. all the way back to Smith? No, no one has okay. suggested that or been able to suggest that. And then the other thing I would point out is that nobody's fired or punished the attorney general. For not pursuing yeah. these charges. All right, like but these, on charges, the merits, these charges were not dropped, and no one has punished the fire the, the attorney general in this case. On the and also the, merits, and also I would the, agree, though it's bad. Oh yeah, yeah. Like it, if we have if we have evidence that, the, that someone from the premier's office did this, it's that is a that is a serious scandal, and the CPC is absolutely right to pursue yeah. it as a story. No question, hands down. Period. No farts. What? It's just funny. I mean, I view this as a political observer, but I also view this as a journalist, and I can see how this goes wrong both ways. Oh, yeah. I think, I think in one of our earlier conversations about this, because I don't think this is the first time we've talked about this on The Dispatch, I said it was very plausible to me that what had happened was that somewhere along the line, some Alberta staffer gave a little bit of a talking to to someone's in the uh, 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 attorney general office, maybe stupidly, maybe naively, maybe arrogantly, maybe cockily. But that that uh, was then interpreted in the offices. Who's this asshole pressuring me, right? Some of that might have been going on with the Lavalin thing as well. Mm -hmm. That seems less likely now based on what you're explaining. The other thing, and you've already touched on this. I'm just echoing it back to you. Smith's own carelessness gives, even if she's right, the fact that she's making comments like, I went down there and told him to straighten this out. And then walks that back later. Yeah, and then walks that back later instantly gives her lack it's of credibility. It's a credibility. It's a big, big credibility hit. So Huge I don't is. know if it's true. I don't know if the CBC can prove it if it's true. I know that Premier Smith has almost gone out of her way to make it sound plausible. Oh, yeah. I think that all of those things are accurate. But if this fundamentally comes down to Smith and her government suing the CBC for libel, the question is going to be yep. not how does Smith disprove the, the, the existence of this email? And also her her going back to her saying this and then backtracking and saying, oh, I was imprecise, blah, 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 won't matter. If she, because all, all that will matter is what the, C, what the CBC put in its story and whether or not the CBC can defend itself and what it put in the story. And the CBC, according to what we have on the record right now, from what I know public, publicly, if the CBC has to go up on a, on a, on a, on a stand and say, Okay, I've accused the government of messing with the independence of the of 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 the justice system based on a source I can't name and won't testify on my behalf, recalling an email that I suspect's been deleted but can't prove and that I haven't seen and can't confirm through any independent means exists. That's that's a game like I'm sorry, I'm not a lawyer, but like that sounds like game over territory to me. I don't I don't see how they win that. I'm going to actually suggest a fifth possible scenario here, and it's a little—it's a little bit less than the nuclear option of um, of uh, litigation. Mm -hmm. CBC is an ombudsperson, and they're pretty good at their job. I know people get angry at this, but I wonder—just—I'm just, just spitballing here. I've, I've never been involved in one of these things. I wonder what happens if the premier's office files a complaint with the CBC and goes, "We think this is completely bullshit coverage. We have done at like." At a certain point, like it's one thing for the local editor to go, I stand by the story. I wonder what happens if the CBC is forced to do a review of itself. Well, an ombuds complaint, I think, would be fair, but I don't think that that's within the political benefit of Smith's office. What's to the political benefit of Smith's mm, office yeah. mm. is to is to go to war, right? Like if 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 they want if they want to go to mm. war and turn every twist and turn of this drama into a potential fundraising email. Yeah. Also, let me also say so. The the the, the risk of going to war and and going to law is that is disclosure. 
Sure. So dis- disclosure will happen, and who knows what what disclosure process will will drag out of the the muck for for this government. It could drag mm. up anything, including the very email that 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 uh, confirms the story. Absolutely, that could happen. And if the CBC is betting on that happening, then I understand their decision to double down. The problem with this is that disclosure cuts both ways, and for every single search that the CBC is going to be able to do of, of government email and a uh, government email in a disclosure process. The Smith team is going to be able to do a similar type of search on everybody involved in the story with the CBC and all their editors. And if they find any hint of bias or unprofessionalism in those email exchanges, they will turn them into fundraising fodder, not only at the provincial level, but also at the federal level. Every email they find from some low-level staffer who says, screw the UCP, is going to be discoverable. And every I can one see of those the commercials in my 100%. mind now, oh, where they're doing they'll... the little graphic, it makes it look as a scratch of paper with like the bold writing on it. Screw the UCP. Yeah. Dash yeah. CBC staff. And then that becomes proof that uh, the mainstream media is out to get the UCP. Don't listen to what they say. Listen to us. Blah 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 blah. Like you can absolutely see how they could make this to go to their advantage if they are confident that they're right. So where Soldiers does this go? With guns on our street in Canada. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know what? This actually loops me back to in my in my mind. Um, this is a few months ago now. Like we we were younger people then. Uh, but when we were sending out a message specifically, well, we are our, aging in dog years. So there you go. Feels like it. We send a message out to our colleagues uh, in journalism, particularly federal politics uh, coverage to be mindful of the fact that the conservatives were at the time, at least choosing a strategy of deliberate confrontation. Yes. And I would actually say, I mentioned to you just at the outset that um, Mr. Polyev seems to be reemerging from media hibernation. They also seem to have been a l- less directly confrontational, which again, I actually, you know, I probably should go hit up my sources and try to figure out what they're doing. I've just, I haven't a while because I gave them Christmas off and I needed mm-hmm. Christmas off. Uh, but I'm just curious. There's obviously a changing conservative media strategy. So that's probably worth us at some point commenting on. But what you're talking about here could be kind of what we were warning about months ago, which is that it may be in the interest of conservative parties. At the time, we went federal, but it could apply in Alberta to just go to war with the media a strategy of deliberate and direct confrontation uh, for a couple of reasons. If you, if you neuter the ability of the other guy to be seen as fairly criticizing you, your life gets easier, but also fundraising. Yep. It's money. It's just money, baby. I mean, the other problem in all of this is that not only have the, the, the incentives gone perverse, but what I'm afraid is that you've got a CBC that is still operating um, with under the uh, um, assumption that it's 10 years ago and local conservatives need to, you know, at least have a, a somewhat fair relationship with the existing CBC Calgary because it's the biggest mainstream news outlet. And they, I think that they might be assuming that Smith is going to blink mm. because of that. Because they wouldn't dare. Because they wouldn't dare. Maybe 10 years ago today. Uh, I wouldn't put money on that. I don't so, know if uh, yeah, I don't know if anyone's caught up with the fact. I think we've we've been talking about this in recent dispatches. What is the mainstream? Yeah. And if Premier Smith wants to speak to the people of Alberta, she can bypass the CBC. Yeah, she doesn't need the CBC. She can kick the CBC out of every single briefing she ever does. Yeah. She can make it personal. Like yep. and she can reach just as many people by and she can reach just as many people. A, a YouTube live and streaming yep. it on her Facebook page, and the CBC she, would take clips of it and run it. She doesn't need the CBC to like her. She just doesn't anymore. So I don't know where are her incentives and how confident is she that there's no there there. I think that these will be the the, the metrics of um, deciding how she decides to play the next week. So we will come back to this conversation a week from now. And for all we know, everybody will have just, you know, whatever, blunk and moved on. You know, I could also see from Smith's perspective, like they don't want their message to constantly be diluted with a libel suit a libel suit drags the story out maybe they just don't want to go here you know like like they, they could very well just move on so we'll see we'll come back and talk to it next week and see what see what develops but i do think that there's a worthwhile analysis of just what's happened to date 
there's another one more interesting possible angle to this that is, is worth thinking about here is on the on the escalation front. Um, Premier Smith has an election coming up, mm-hmm. and you and I have spoken about this a little bit. Um, one one of the the shittier parts of our current era is that all all roads lead to escalation. Mm-hmm. And all of us, I think, are in general agreement that we need less inflammatory rhetoric, that we we need less confrontation, and yet everyone's individual incentive, the maximum benefit is escalatory. So, well, and like I said, 10 years ago in Alberta and 20 years ago in Alberta. Oh, it was deterrent. Well, and also yeah. that you would have had an incentive for the leader to sit down with the head of the local CBC and just be like, I think you got the story wrong. And, but, you know, like they could have actually worked it out. And you know, without it leading to a libel suit and probably maintaining a good amicable working relationship afterward. And now I don't know if that can happen. Or if anyone needs it to. Or if anyone needs it to. Maybe it can just be full on out full at war. Fine. I okay. Well that's cheerful. So you're gonna write about that. I know you're waiting for me to um talk about my um my big one but actually it's probably worth mentioning here just going a little bit off script just for a second we haven't we didn't really mention the post media stuff last week we acknowledged it uh we didn't really Mm -hmm. get into it i kind of feel like though if if you don't mind just spend a minute or two talking about it now because the conversation has kind of led us here naturally yeah um because as legacy media shrinks political incentives change Mm-hmm. and how a government chooses to interface with the public and whether or not this is Mr. Polyev ending his um, kind of self-imposed media exile or Premier Smith not needing the CBC anymore. As the players uh, change or their scope changes, the rules change and the game changes. Um, post-media this week, we were talking about it last week too because we knew there were going to be cuts last week. Uh, Post Media this week has said it's cutting 11% of its editorial workforce. And that is going to be, according to reports I've read, um, the modern media company's nightmare is that all your internal town halls are just basically immediately released to the public. And believe me, I've. Which, of course, they are. Oh, I've seen one. I've, I, I have some personal experience with that. Um, <laughs> But I, I also just think like the um, Post Media has an editorial staff of uh, about 600 and it's going to cut 11% of it. So that's about, call it 70 bodies. And mm-hmm. based on the memos that are already leaking out, uh, this is lopsidedly going to be the National Post, the Montreal Gazette, and the Vancouver Sun. And Which how- is interesting for a reason I'll point out. Well, one thing I would just point out before that is if you were to think about the three kind of mediest remaining post-media papers. That's right. It's probably the National Post, the Montreal Gazette, and the Vancouver Sun. Yeah. So. Is the Gazette unionized? I don't know. I think so. I think they all are now, all. but yeah. I honestly don't know. So I so, spent a long time at Post Media in senior roles, but I was 100% in the National Post silo. Like, I didn't talk much to the other papers, uh, not because yeah. I was a, a dick or they were dicks. My job was very much internal. For a long time, the Post really wanted to keep National Post comment a distinctive thing. And there was sort of like branding reasons to do that. So I almost probably an unusual extent had very little contact with my post media colleagues outside of that silo. I don't honestly know which are unionized or not, but I think they all are now the the bank, the BC papers are 100% unionized. I know that. And they have been for a really long time. I mean, the reason why I'm just making that point is that, I mean, I worked at the Calgary Herald and the the national post. And one of the, the things that I saw firsthand was that when layoffs came, it hit the non-unionized papers first and harder than the unionized papers because the unionized papers could generally protect their staff better. That was easier. Yeah. So this is why the Vancouver Sun was a much fatter paper, even though it was, I believe, much less profitable than the Herald and the Journal. But the Herald and the Journal just got cut to, to a skeleton staff, essentially, and then merged with the Sun papers. Um well, the Vancouver Sun, while still have to deal with layoffs, was still relatively fat. Now, this is why I was asking. I, I can understand also why the Montreal Gazette was maybe a bit fatter than the other papers because it's French. It's sort of in a French area. Well, and it's the Anglo paper. It's the Anglo paper. So I can understand that. 
think I think the citizen managed to hold on a little bit longer than a lot of the other ones because it was of course Ottawa and then the, the, for a long time the National Post was very much the the crown jewel of the of of the company and so they were just loath to touch it for that reason <clears throat> at all. Plus they kept on trying to centralize a lot of the um, regional papers out of the National Post. So the National Post was taking on one, more and more and more of the, the regional papers roles and providing doing more and more content to the regional papers as a result of that. So they were really loath to cut those three papers for those reasons. So now, of course, the, the bills come due is what, I, is what I would say. There was an interesting statement um, that uh, was specific to Post Media. Post Media, it's always interesting. Post Media is the canary in the coal mine of Canadian newspapers because it's been mm. such a fiscal wreck for so long that Everything bad happens to it first because it has mm-hmm. no fat. Yeah. Every cut is right into muscle or bone. Uh, but yeah. all the other papers are going to end up in the same place. Um, again, I, I've, look, I, I resigned from Post Media years ago now, and uh, my column there concluded last, uh, like a long time ago, like uh, eight, eight or nine months ago, since I was mm-hmm. a National Post columnist, even as a freelancer. Uh, my remaining ties to the paper are entirely those of friendship just with Mm -hmm. people there. Uh, So I don't have any inside info, but my understanding is the national post is now nominally staffed somewhere in the range of 40 people thereabouts. When I joined, it would have been about 140. And when I joined, everyone was telling me how tiny that was. I can't believe there's only 140 people holding this place up now. Um, You and I have spoken about this. We've written about this. I don't know if the broader public has ever appreciated how few human beings are behind some of these institutions that still have kind of legacy heft in their minds. Mm-hmm. So I, I got, I got nothing to say. Like, it's like, I I've already spoken with some of my friends there. I don't want to be the the jerk who um, is all in their inbox being like, Hey, are you okay? Hey, are you like, I'm going to, I, look, I've talked to some who've talked to me and I've sent a couple of notes to friends there saying, hey, thinking of you, hope you're well. I haven't spoken to the management there because there's nothing I can say that's going to help them. They feel terrible. Like they sweat no, blood. Nobody, they... nobody, nobody wants this. And this so, doesn't help anything. No, it's, but I just think like, this is what happens when the trend lines all point the same direction long enough. Like, and when, when the butcher's bill comes out, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to know every name on that list, oh, especially from the National Post. There and aren't there aren't that many people left. No, we all kind of know each other within one or two degrees at this point. You know, I I like the fact that I'm largely independent these days, but the National Post was my first journalism job, and I'll always bleed uh, bleed yellow and black for that paper, right? And well, I mean, you're either a Post person, a Globe person, or a Star person, and I, I'm not saying that. You know, not everybody works for those papers, but you kind of align with the sentiment and the philosophy of one of those papers, you know. And yeah. the the post mafia is huge because we're everywhere. Like you, like you, you go into every journalism outlet in the country, you find National Post veterans there, and there's a real camaraderie among them, and there always have been. Yep. Uh, and what what's happening sucks. And uh, to any posties who happen to hear this, uh, even if you haven't heard from me, it's not because I don't care; it's because I don't want to be obnoxious. But if, you know, if it's your name on the list, you'll hear from me and we'll be whatever help we can be. But I fucking hate this. I hate watching this. I hated being part of it. I hated it when I was a junior staffer. I hated it when I was a manager having to make decisions like this. I, but like I said, this is, this is where the trend lines have been bringing us and they've been bringing us there for a long time. The, uh, and what the post said, and this is what, uh, what was said at this post media meeting, which I didn't see, but I read all about it because they all get leaked immediately is that revenues are collapsing and inflation's driving costs higher. Well, guess what? When, when money coming in is drying up and money going out is going faster, we all know where that ends. Yep. It's also, I would, can I point out that, that, uh, ad, ad revenue drying up is a clear early indication of a recession. Yeah. Because the ad budgets are one of the first things that get cut. It's a it's a warning indication. My many posty friends, I love you and I am sorry. Yep. So I guess we want to talk about um, the situation. The situation. The situation in Toronto. I'm a little I'm a little reluctant to characterize it as a Toronto situation because I think my gut feeling, and I don't have proof. I don't have okay. proof for this. Okay. My gut feeling is this is a national, even international issue that is crystallizing in Toronto. I'll tell you why in a minute. 
But what has happened in Toronto is that there's been a string of um, of violent incidents, and they've been um, many of them have been on the Toronto Transit Commission, the TTC, or as a old radio producer of mine used to chastise me for saying, I always pronounce it the TDC. Sorry, Toronto thing. I I, I will self-consciously always try to say the double t but i might call it the tdc it's the toronto transit commission i want to tell you something just transit command transit commission there's also been some swarmings and weird shit like that well let me it's well some of them have been on around the tdc but let me tell you let me tell you what happened to me on wednesday i mentioned so on uh monday and tuesday of this week i was at news talk 1010 the old cfrb in toronto i was filling in for a colleague there who's uh, taking some time off and the lead story of the day on both days was violence on the TTC because mm-hmm. there's been so much of it. And on Wednesday, I wake up very early because it's my son's early hockey day. And I'm thinking to myself, I really hope we don't have another one of these damned incidents today because I'm going to be back on the air in the afternoon for the for the evening show. And I don't want to be talking about this again. I'm sitting in the parking lot at the hockey rink because the hockey rink's freezing and my car is toasty. And a breaking news alert comes out on Wednesday morning that there's been another incident at the TTC. So I'm, it's it's frustrating. It's annoying. It's bad. And I um, I uh, go to work that day. I, I get down to the station. While I'm on my way down, there is a guy on the subway having a mental health episode of some kind, uh, covering his ears and screaming. Get to the station. We agree that we're going to do a series of conversations about this, about the state of the TTC. We schedule one of them for 4.30. Got a couple of guests on. We're talking about it, having a good conversation. While we're doing that, the Toronto police announces another attack on the TTC in the middle of a segment about the attacks on the TTC. A 16-year-old gets knifed. And then I, I, yeah, uh, I've covered crime in Toronto and like some of these incidents are so weird yeah. and so effed up that like they would be the sort of incidents that you get once a year and they're happening every day Look. it's 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 what's happening over there is not normal this is not normal I'm born and raised Toronto and I am well aware of the fact that the TTC has never been a place of just total safety and tranquility like you no, grow up in a big not. city, crazy person yeah. on the bus, knifing on the bus, a sex assault on the bus. They're all serious. They're all reported on, but they're part of the background noise of the city. Late last year, a woman was doused in flammable fluid by a complete stranger and set on fire and she burned to death. That's that's no, not that's not normal. There's not a lot of those. Not long afterward, another woman in a subway station was randomly attacked by a man with a knife and was murdered. This week, uh, there have been a series of these incidents, and on so on Wednesday, I'm riding the TTC because I'm a typical I'm a Toronto guy. I ride I ride the transit system like I use it all the time. And on my three trips that day, two of them have people in full blown mental health crises on the system. And I send out this little tweet thread when I get home, basically saying, "Hey, folks, this is what I saw today," and I end it by saying, "I hope tomorrow is better." That's Thursday. There's another attack on the TTC on Thursday. So when we're filming this, thus far, there have been no major security incidents today. Fingers crossed. Maybe okay, we so make it Literally every time that you're talking, something happens. So like the second you send this out, there will be another one. Honest to God, you know, let me... Here let me double check. Uh, 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 no kidding? That's what I'm doing. So since we began doing this, has there been any incidents worth mentioning? Um, Got to get a Google alert now. No, no bulletins as of now, as of okay. any TTC incidents today. Okay. It's just before five o'clock Eastern time, Friday. Um, I think, I, I think there's a pretty reasonable explanation for all of this. I I think that what has happened is that before the pandemic, say early 2020, the scale of our problems and the scale of our solutions were roughly in balance. So I don't think we were making progress on the big issues. I don't think we were making the streets safer. I don't think we were dealing with homelessness. I don't think we were dealing with the mental health crisis, but I think we were keeping a lid on it. 
And probably for most taxpayers, that's good enough. Oh, it happened somewhere else. Oh, that's terrible that happened. Didn't happen to me. I think the pandemic has made people a little bit crazier. And I think it has also sapped our ability to respond to it. So I bet you right now, and I don't mean, I'm using crazy sloppily and maybe even a bit pejoratively. I don't mean mentally ill necessarily, because I think some of this is straight up criminality. Not every incident we're hearing about on the Toronto Transit Commission is person who could have been medicated if only there had been enough social workers. Some of this stuff is outright criminal, but I think our society has been somewhat destabilized by COVID. (laughs) And I think our public safety problems have gotten worse. And I think at the same time, our ability to deal with those public safety problems through policing, through homeless shelters, through housing initiatives, and through mental health care have all, for various reasons, been eroded. They've all so redlined. I think, I think we've got a problem that's gotten worse and a, and societal capacity to deal with them that's been eroded. Well, like I and, said to you a few minutes ago, when when revenues down and expenses are up, you know how that ends. And I well, think and societally, the, it's the same the, thing. The other interesting thing is things don't have to get dramatically worse on either of those sides of the equation. You only need to have like a 10% uptick in crazy combined with say a 15% decline in capacity. Bingo. Now you're 25% over budget. And now you just hit a tipping point of, 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 of issues. Right. Yeah. And the reason we got to be very careful in our conversations about this is I'm not here to make anyone's life harder. As you well know, you know, the studies, you know, the stats, most mentally ill people are not violent. They're more likely to be the victim of crimes than criminals because they're vulnerable. Um, there has been reports that I've spoken to about some of my cop sources that homeless people in Toronto are now being randomly attacked because people fear the homeless and they're angry about them. Right. A couple of nights ago for the first time, so, nothing so like here, it. This is another example of these compounding problems. So uh, when, when you start to have a system breakdown in society and law and order, you have an increase in vigilantism, which then compounds them into, into basically gang warfare. <laughs> when. When when people feel that the situation is lawless, everything gets worse. Yes. Now I want to. This is not going to. This is going to sound like the weakest ever defense of my hometown. I don't think this is a uniquely Toronto problem because what I described before, kind of the worsening of the problem, it, combined with the reduction in capacity, that will be basically universal. But I think what's different about Toronto is that no other city in Canada, except maybe Montreal has a transit system that fills the same role as Toronto. It's not the beating heart of the city the way the TTC is anywhere else. It's just got a high den- higher density problem. I mean, if you, yeah. have, if you have the same degree, it's the same per capita amount of crazy in a place, and I'm using, again, the word crazy sloppily, but if you have the same per capita amount of crazy in Calgary or Edmonton, it's dispersed over a much physically larger space. And it's not all in one agency. It's- not all in one agency. So if and... Calgary is having this problem, Jen, I think it's going to manifest itself as like a street mugging. It's going to manifest itself as a, as a beating. It's going to well, manifest itself as I think, I think we've had problems on, the, on our on our transit system as well. I just don't think that we have the same degree of just density and mass you guys have. And I, I think because the TTC fills a kind of a bigger place in, in daily life here than it would in most other cities there's a real public sensitivity about this. And you know the way these things get reported. If five guys get mugged in different neighborhoods of the city, that's on the crime blotter. Five guys get attacked on the TDC, that's national news. And The other, the other interesting thing I would ask you is, is TDC ship, is it with their ridership up or down? Oh, down. And so this is happening even though the, the amount of people on the TTC is declined. Um, I think what is happening, I think it's actually, I think we're getting it from both ends there. Overall ridership is down about a third Mm -hmm. pre-pandemic. And meanwhile, the use of the system by people who are uh, in in whatever kind of distress is also up in the same time. So your ratio is whacked. Yeah, the ratio is whacked. Like there are not as many normie commuters getting to and from the office as there used to be. And there's a lot more people who should be in hospitals or homeless shelters or some kind of supportive housing or possibly prison. And so even if so, so there's, young line up so there's more people who are like you, who maybe you're, you're, you're not going to be attacked, but you're witnessing mental health issues at a much greater per capita rate when you are using it. That then, and of course, you know, 100 people, 200 people can witness that event and, not, and, and, and see it, but not necessarily be attacked or personally harmed by it. 
Um, so then your overall sense of security and stability in the system as a whole starts to get eroded because you're seeing these things happen more often when you're when you're in it. I've got stubborn city person pride, which is basically, fuck you, I'm riding my subway. Torontonians have a bit of that New York mentality in it. It's, it manifests differently here, but you're not chasing me off my fucking subway. The hell with you. Um, But I'd think twice before taking my kids on it. And we used to ride the, the TDC for fun. Mm. Like rainy day, bored, kids need to get out of house. Everybody's got a bit of cabin fever. Go ride all the way down to Union Station, get an ice cream cone and ride it back. And it would kill a couple of hours. Like it mm -hmm. was a cheap, safe, fun way to get a four and a six year old out of the house for a couple of hours. I don't know if I do that now. Hmm. So they, um, what really concerns me about this though, if I'm right about my theory that like problem is up 10%, like kind of you said, problems up 10%, capacities down 15%. Mm -hmm. If I'm right about that, that's a problem that only gets corrected when we bring up capacity to equal problem. And yeah. you don't, you don't actually make any headway then, but at least you stop losing ground. I don't think our politicians think in those terms. Like, I think the entire Canadian political class, their expectations are a problem. They are middle managers who fundamentally conceive their world as a stable, happy place where all the trend lines are fundamentally good. And it's their job to gently manage the system in the most hands-off way possible. I don't think we have a lot of genuine crisis managers in our government who go, holy shit, the fundamental nature of the reality has changed and that requires us to rapidly do the following things. I just don't think that mindset exists in many places in Canadian governance, except probably the military, which is why we use the military for everything during the pandemic. There's no one else in They're Canadian handy. government. There's no one else in Canadian government. And I mean, federal, provincial, and most municipalities outside maybe of some first responder and emergency management agencies that actually have the sense of, whoa, here's a worsening situation. We should do something. The default Canadian reflex to problems is so brilliantly captured by the Trudeau government ordering a, asking a retired Supreme Court justice to write a report about sexual misconduct in the military, doing nothing, and then two years asking a different one to go hey, you know what? I'm sure report. that there's a Supreme Court um, just kicking around who can write a report on the situation, the worsening crime situation in Toronto. Perfect. We're, we're going to pile reports on reports on reports and... Oh, and if, and if and if you manage to uh, point any out of these any of these problems out, uh, honestly and straightforward, you're the bad guy because you're just stigmatizing people with mental illness. Off, obviously. Yeah, there's there's been some of that. So on Saturday, where's your last... compassion for the poor poor woman who stabbed that girl's eye out? Well, that's the thing, right? Um, like the last uh, Saturday, I was riding the Spadina streetcar. Uh, for for my uh, Toronto or our Toronto viewers here and listeners uh, through Chinatown. And I had to do a little shopping down there. I didn't want to park. So I took the, the streetcar. And the next day on that very same streetcar, exactly where I'd been riding it, one, one stop south of where I got onto it, uh, a woman in her 40s randomly knifed a woman in her 20s with no provocation and no prior relationship and mutilated the poor girl. And we have groups of teenagers swarming TDC employees. We have people getting shot with BB guns, which is annoying, but also like, what the fuck? We've had more uh, stabbings. We had that woman getting literally burned to death. I was just pointing out how weird this is, that so much of this is so random. Yeah, like that's not Like, that's not normal. Normal crime is... Usually, it's, perpetrators know that it's victims. a sexual assault of opportunity. It's a random mugging uh, a, for financial, yeah, reasons. maybe financial yeah. reasons, but like just just random acts of just extreme violence against total strangers. That again, I from my own time, that would maybe happen once a year, and it would be big news. I don't think like, the average Canadian knows how safe Toronto had typically been. Yes, Toronto it, is anomalous for how safe it is. Yes, I, I I was there in my 20s and I felt perfectly fine using the transit. I walked throughout the city at night, even through the rough parts and knock on wood, never really had problems. That was normal. I think, you know, one of the things that jumped out at me when uh, we were tracking all this in recent days has been um, 
California's had a weird string of mass shootings lately. Mm-hmm. And you might have seen in Hamilton, Ontario, this is probably worth the dispatch item as well, where the liberals were gathering for a uh, cabinet. Oh, wait, this, this, the, I pinned this. Yes. Yeah. The prime minister and his cabinet got swarmed by protesters. I hear and then, about. And then, and then the, the prime minister sort of responded to this with his, one of his campaign slogans is like, these angry people do not represent the people of Hamilton. And I'm like, nobody suggested that they did. Yeah. What does that have to, like, what are you talking about? I'll tell you this. You, t- you show me septuagenarians gunning down people at a lunar new year party in california you show me the prime minister getting mobbed in hamilton and you show me a woman in her 20s getting her face carved up by a total stranger on the tdc and i do not consider these completely separate incidents i just i think there is yeah i think it's like a weird i said i think society's gotten 10 percent more crazy just collectively just just 10% more crazy. And meanwhile, our ability to cope with anything is 20% reduced because everybody's fucking tired or they're dealing with like actual patients or Or they've got staff shortages because people just quit the shitty jobs. They don't want to do them anymore. They've retired on mass. If they're a boomer, they're like, we're done. We're out. You know, uh, there's, it's interesting. The United States has a, has actually a fairly significant labor shortage. This is the beginning of the demographic crisis that we're, that's about to hit us. It's about starting to hit us. It's hitting us ahead of schedule because of the hitting unexpected of schedule wave of because of the unexpected wave of retirements. Once again, COVID's catalyzed pre-existing problems. I just think our entire society was operating on uh, a razor's edge. Well, so and... was our IC. So were our ICUs. So there. Oh, you go. it's the classic example. Yes. You, you know, know what I love about this? We maximized for level B. You know why we're never going to make any progress on this? Because both the left and the right are convinced they have the perfect answer for this, hmm. and at, like. I wrote a, in a column for TVO this week. The bleeding hearts are going to tell you we need more social workers. The right winger is going to tell you we need more cops, and they're both right. Mm-hmm. But instead of agreeing with that, they're just going to scream at each other. Like that, <laughs> we need security. We need bail reform. We need to stop recycling violent criminals in and out of the justice system back onto the streets. We also need to make sure people who could leave completely normal lives, if only they had a chance, get that chance. And we're not going to do either of those things because we're just going to blame each other for not having those things. Yeah. And this is like, this is what really worries me. Like when I write our expectations are a problem or a column I wrote in late 2021, a different one, only dead Canadians will shock us out of our complacency. The problems we have can be fixed. We just aren't fixing them. Like we, we have not made the decision. We should fix this. Because that's what not what we do in the country. We don't fix problems here. No, we study them and we talk about them. Yep. The liberals, as as hard as we we're are, we're good at that. We're good at the last part, by the way, talking about the problems. We're great at that. We're awesome. But I would say, as hard as we are on the federal liberals for like the deliverology stuff, they're only the most pure distillation to date of what is a pretty pan Canadian problem. Oh yes, like, liberals like, took we, that we, we don't we don't know how to solve problems because bluntly, historically, we really haven't really had very many. No, and you could have few, whole careers we... pushing paper. Yeah, keeping absolutely. a lid on things. I'm just saying, keep it keep it at a low simmer. We're relatively wealthy. We're relatively protected, peaceful. You know, everything's fine. Nothing. We don't have crisis management experience. We barely even have mild inconvenience management experience, which is mm-hmm. why those people got stuck on the goddamn train. Yep. The, but anyway, on on that note, I do think that your clock is yeah, running gotta, out. You got to go. I got to go to hockey, which is the most Canadian thing ever. Complain about all the problems <laughs> and get to a rink. And then get to a rink. That's where you'll solve them. Uh, yep. Okay. So, um, post media, Polyev media uh, vacation over. I'll I'll write up that blurb. I think we have uh, the post media ones handled already. You're gonna do Alberta. I'm gonna do Toronto needs Batman. Yeah, and also I sent you a, a link to my next piece. So. Oh, a column like for next week? Yes. I'm going to worry about next week, next week. All right. No, it's fine. Or on Sunday or whatever. Okay. All right. Bye. Go, go, go. Thanks, everybody. Folks, that's it for us. For Jen Gerson, this is Matt Gurney. We hope you've enjoyed the latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast, and we'll talk to you next week.